Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm really thrilled that we get to kind of explore today's topic. We are talking about co-regulation in our relationships. And I had a fantastic question from Jessie over on Instagram. She asked and she said, you know, your husband, this past podcast mentioned a term that I had never heard before, co-regulation. What does that mean? How is it different from codependency? I'm really confused and I'd love some more information. So this is for you, Jesse, not only this podcast, but next podcast as well. We're going to be talking first today about what co-regulation is so that we can kind of wrap our heads around what we're aiming for and what kind of healthy interdependence looks like. And then in our next episode, we're going to talk about the difference between kind of the three kinds of regulation that we hear about out in the psychological world. We're going to talk about co-regulation, but we're going to contrast it with codependency. But we're also going to talk a little bit about self-regulation and kind of how all of those are connected. You might hear some of that today too, because all of this is kind of interwoven in my head. And even though I have notes that have definitely separated those things, I'm sure there will be a little bit of overlap. Now, before we get started, if you love this podcast and you believe it is helping you and others heal from religious trauma, please go over to emancipateyourmind.org and click on that little box that says support the podcast and give a gift. Your donations allow me to continue to do this work and to continue to devote so much time to the research and being able to produce this every single week. I love the work I do. I love the ways that we're getting to interact, and I want to be able to continue because I think it's important for us to talk about these topics. Also, if you become a monthly donor, any amount of monthly donation will get you on the donor email list where you're going to get additional tools every single week that will help you get the most from each podcast as well as be part of a live discussion where we can talk about how these podcast topics apply to your personal life, if you would like. And we also have discussions where we kind of like explore all of the different facets of a topic. I am loving what we're doing in the community, and I would love to have you be a part of it. So if you want to be a part of this community and you want to have that one-on-one interaction, please go over to emancipateyourmind.org. Click that box that says support the podcast and give a gift and choose any monthly donation amount. It's greatly appreciated and I look forward to seeing you on the calls. All right. So what is co-regulation? First, we're going to pull from an academic study that's called co-regulation from birth through young adulthood, a practice brief that's in the show notes. And it's by Murray et al. in 2019. And what they say is co-regulation is the interactive process by which caring adults provide warm, supportive relationships and promote self-regulation through coaching, modeling, and feedback. In this article, he mentions that co-regulation is something that is both unique and necessary to the health and well-being of all mammals. So not just humans, but your cats, your dogs, your horses, dolphins we all co-regulate. We actually have neurons inside of ourselves called mirror neurons that allow us to engage in this co-regulation process where I can notice that you're sad and meet you in your sadness and provide this like safe relationship for you to explore and share your sadness and feel seen and heard and better connected to me as another human. And our dogs do this as well. It's part of the reason we call dogs man's best friend. They notice when we're sad 
or when we're like down in the dumps and they'll come and they'll snuggle up next to you. Your cats will sometimes do the same thing. I don't know about you, but my cat is, I think she has an anxiety disorder. She hides for most of the day. She loves my husband. Kevin is her person. And she only loves me whenever no one else is around. I'm like her secret friend. It's like in high school when the popular kid is friends with you and you're not very popular. In fact, maybe you're picked on, but they're only friends with you in secret. That's my cat. My cat only likes me when no one else is around. And when everybody else is around, she pretends like she hates me, but secretly she loves me. However, I digress. When we are in kind of low emotional states, when we're crying, when we're sad, often our animals will notice and they'll come and they'll snuggle up next to us. Or if we're sick, you you often hear about, you know, terminally ill patients that have animals that come and snuggle up to them. There's a reason we have emotional support animals. Other mammals are fantastic at helping us co-regulate our emotions because they do it as well and they need it as well. So we come out of the womb and there's actually research going on saying that we actually do this in the womb, but we come out of the womb needing the comfort that comes from regulating our emotions with other mammals, particularly with humans. And it's a need that begins and evolves throughout our childhood. So the way we need co-regulation as an infant is going to evolve and change throughout our childhood into our teenagerhood and into our adulthood. But it doesn't go away once we become adults. We still need to be seen and comforted and supported by other humans, even as we get into adulthood. In fact, we're going to be 100 years old, and we're still going to benefit both mentally and emotionally by being able to successfully co-regulate our emotional states with other human beings. Now, Murray's research team recognized two pieces to co-regulation, and we're going to talk about those today. So the first part of co-regulation is being able to provide a warm, supportive environment for a relationship to take place. Stephen Porges, who is the other person I'm going to reference today, he's the creator of polyvagal theory. And I'm going to link an episode that he did back in 2017 on the Relationship School podcast that is fantastic, where he deep dives into co-regulation in adult relationships and like what we need in order to feel intimate with a romantic partner. It is fantastic. I'll put it there. Please listen after this podcast. It's really good. It's long, but it's really, really good. But he says, if you want to improve the world, you start by making people feel safe because what happens whenever we're in the safe state Whenever we are out of fight or flight and we're in the rest and digest state, which is what he calls that, when we're in the place where we don't feel threatened, all of our you know protective devices are down and we feel emotionally, physically, and mentally safe in a space with another human, here's what happens. We are better able to problem solve. We're more creative and innovative. We're better able to hear our own emotional and physical cues and communicate those to someone else. We're also better able to recognize other people's emotional cues and connect with them. And it creates this place where we're better able to work through conflict. We put down our defenses and we're better able to meet each other emotionally. And it's this state of having our defenses down. And feeling safe to be immobile, as Dr. Porges says, that we experience something called intimacy. Intimacy is that state of putting down our armor and not having to worry about fight or flight, that we feel safe in that space. And for some of us, we've never experienced that in a human relationship before. Or maybe we haven't experienced it in a really long time, especially when we're coming from high demand systems, either high demand families or high demand religions where everyone is being monitored all the time and you're constantly having to mask. There is never a sense of I can put down my armor and I just get to be myself and it's okay 
for me to not have everything figured out. And it's okay for me to be emotional and messy and a work in progress. Some of us may have never experienced that before. So that's why we're talking about co-regulation today, because that is the kind of atmosphere we're trying to create for ourselves in our relationships with our romantic partners, with our friends, and particularly with our kids. Because right now they're the most plastic and we want to provide this opportunity for them to understand how to co-regulate because it allows them to better self-regulate as they move into adulthood. I know that many of us know a lot of adults who are not very good at self-regulating. And that's part of the reason we've gotten into codependency is perhaps we had parents that were not very good at self-regulating, or perhaps we had religious leaders or spouses that just really didn't know how to regulate their emotions and they would often become emotionally dysregulated. And so we took on the responsibility for their dysregulation and we decided, okay, I will monitor my behavior and I will mold myself around you so that you don't get dysregulated so that I stay safe. And that is codependency. And we'll be talking more about that next week and kind of comparing and contrasting it with co-regulation. So um, we're looking for this place where people have learned how to self-regulate and we can teach our kids that through co-regulation. In fact, I'll probably say this again somewhere later in the podcast, but Dr. Porges in his research has found that people need to experience co-regulation in order to be able to learn how to self-regulate. So we talk about self-regulation a lot in our society. In fact, I've seen a lot of awareness about codependency in kind of the coaching spaces. You've probably heard some of this from me because I'm still learning just like you are. Every day I'm evolving in my understanding and reading more research. But codependency has gotten a really bad rap and everyone's like, don't don't be codependent because in our codependent states, we lose our sense of identity. We lose our sense of self. And that doesn't feel good for us, right? A lot of us are experiencing that right now. We're trying to figure out who am I? What do I like? What do I want? Who am I without this religious organization? Who am I outside of perhaps a you know high demand family system? If I don't have the role that I've always had in my family, if I'm not responsible for everybody else's emotions, who am I? And what do I want? What do I need? What do I feel? And how do I work through these things? That's us healing from codependency and really being able to like explore and figure out what our personal identity is. And that is really healthy for us to do. However, as we're healing from codependency, as we often do as humans, sometimes we pendulum swing over to the opposite end of the spectrum. So if codependency is on one side of the spectrum, we have like really intense independence on the other side of the spectrum. And so in this place that is often called self-regulation, what it actually is, is this kind of avoidance of sharing anything emotional or vulnerable with anyone else. Um, So we can either like shut off, like I'm not going to burden anyone else with my feelings. Those are not your responsibility. They're just my responsibility. I've had several people in conversations with me be like, I know this feels codependent, but this is what I'm feeling. Like just even sharing feelings can feel like maybe you're engaging in codependence. And there is a healthy spot in the middle that allows us to be individual, to see the world differently, to have our own thoughts, beliefs, opinions, ideas, emotions, and reality, and be able to connect with and find support from other people and a group. And we're looking for that sweet spot for us. And that sweet spot's going to be different for every single person because we're all individuals. Some of us are going to crave more time and more processing with other people. Like me, I'm a verbal processor. That's part of the reason I love this podcast is because I read all of this information and then I get to talk about it. And hopefully it's helpful for you. Like hopefully that's the reason you're still here is it's helping you kind of make sense of things. So I read all of this information and then I verbally process it. 
what I'm doing right here is a bit of a co-regulation sort of a mechanism because I'm connecting with other humans and we're talking about ideas and feelings. And then I take that feedback and go back inside of myself and compare it to what I'm experiencing. And then we talk about it again. And it's kind of an input and output thing. We go in and out. So for me, I really do enjoy having other people to kind of bounce ideas off of, to have people like even disagree with me and help me see things from their point of view so I can consider those things and get closer to what feels true and good for me. And this is that process of co-regulation. So there is, you know, the the self-regulation part, which is me taking responsibility for myself, but there's also this like interdependence that we are social creatures. We're wired to connect. That doesn't mean that we're all extroverts. It just means that we all need some human support, human connection. For some of us, it's one or two other people and we're good. For others of us, we like big groups of people. We like to be surrounded with human activity a lot more frequently. And there are none that are better or worse than others. It's all just personal preference. So what has happened is we've all become very aware of codependency over the last decade. And I think the pendulum has swung over to this like extreme independence. And in this extreme independence, part of the reason it's problematic is because when we're in the space, we don't feel like we can share our feelings with others or that we're being codependent if we need other people or if we need someone to like help us make sense of what we're experiencing. And there's almost a shame element that can happen sometimes if we can't figure our stuff out on our own. Now, the other thing that happens in this kind of extremely independent place where we try to separate ourselves emotionally from other people is we feel like, and we see this a lot on social media, we feel like we can say and do whatever we want to say and do. And if somebody gets triggered or offended or hurt, that that's all on them and that we have no part to play in that. And it it can kind of feel like in Mormonism, there was a talk given by a general authority several years ago. Um, his name is David Bednar. And he talked about choosing to be offended. And it kind of comes from this place of like, extreme independence of if you get upset, that's on you. And it's something you need to look at when actually there's this place in the middle of the spectrum in which we can just get curious in a relationship. We can notice like I delivered to use Kevin's analogy from last week. I delivered the Frisbee of this, you know, communication as best as I could. And you had a reaction. And instead of getting defensive, we get curious. This is part of the way that we create these safe environments for us to explore emotions is we, first of all, are present enough to notice like, oh, you just had a reaction. You got really tense. Your jaw got tense. And part of that process is getting really familiar with our own bodily responses to emotions. We can notice like, oh, your tone of voice changed there or your facial expression changed there. Help me understand. And we can create a curious dialogue between us where we're both monitoring our own emotions. We're not blaming the other person, but we're just getting curious. Like what just happened for you there? What was the trigger? Why did that trigger you? Help me understand you better. And so what we do when we create the safer environment is people feel, I guess, more able to take off their armor and we feel better able to see and hear each other so that we can find solutions that actually work. Because what happens is when our armor is on and we don't feel like we can actually share with one another, either because we feel responsible for the other person's emotions, or we feel shame that the other person was triggered by something that we said. What we do is we create this environment where I don't get to take off my armor because I'm afraid I'm going to be attacked by you. And that's evolutionary. Like that serves a purpose. That fight or flight response serves a purpose and it's protected us well up to this point. You have those behaviors because they've been protecting you, not just 
now in this life, but generationally, they've been protecting your ancestors and keeping you safe from predators, both other animal predators as well as, you know, human predators. You have these responses because they're evolutionary and they have helped your species and your ancestral line survive to this point. However, many of us desire intimacy on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Once we've gotten those base levels of survival met, we start wanting to connect and feel loved and seen and intimate, and we want to expand. It's just how humans work. And so if we don't feel comfortable to do that, we stay at the survival state. We stay right there just worried about like, do I have enough food to eat? Do I have a roof over my head? Like, am I safe? But if we want to get close with one another, we have to create these environments where we can take off our armor. And then we can get out of the stories that our brains make about why people react the way they do and instead get curious with that person and find out what's actually going on. Our brains do not like uncertainty. So let's say I'm communicating with someone and they get triggered. If we don't have a safe environment, if I can't create that or they can't create that, because at least one of us has to be able to navigate creating a safe relationship for us to create co-regulation. One of us has to be emotionally intelligent enough to like step out of the emotional triggers. Because what happens is if I trigger another person and I'm not self-aware enough, they can turn around and trigger me right back. And then we get into this like dance of conflict. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. Kevin and I have engaged in it. We still do occasionally. But what happens is if I say something and it triggers the other person, either because my tone of voice reminds them of their father or um, like my body posture, they just register it some way. And it's often unconscious. Triggers are not conscious things usually. Our bodies take in information and then we react from a you know subconscious place. So they get triggered, they get shorter with me, or maybe their body language changes. If I can't create a safe, warm environment, or if they can't, one or the other, right? Like if one of us doesn't have some self-awareness here where we can, or both of us ideally, right? Have some self-awareness where we can be like, whoa okay, that was a trigger and like step out of the cycle and just like slow it down. Like Kevin was talking about last week. If we don't have that self-awareness, what's going to happen is they're going to snap from that trigger place. Because remember, triggers bring us down into the fight or flight response, fight, flight, fawn, or freeze. They're going to do one of those four things when they're triggered. Unless there's some self-awareness, like maybe they're triggered and they pause and they're like, wait, just a second. Let me figure out what just happened and we'll continue. If they don't do that, I can still do that. I can be like, whoa, okay, obviously something just happened there. Help me understand what just happened. Let me get curious. I said this and then and then I saw you react this way. Your face did this, your body tensed up, you were feeling this way. Help me understand what happened. And we get curious. Then what we do is we slow it down and we now have this environment where we can just explore what's going on. Now, safety is going to feel different for every single person. If you are anxiously attached, safety is going to feel like knowing that the other person isn't going to abandon you. Safety is going to feel like, you know, having like physical or at least eye contact kind of, you know, connection. Safety is going to feel like knowing the other person is going to come back and talk through things and that you guys are committed to this. But safety for someone who's avoidantly attached might feel very, very different. Safety for them might feel like knowing they have the freedom to go process on their own. Safety might feel like having the time to work through things. And so when we're creating this warm, safe environment in a relationship between two people who have very different attachment styles, it's going to be getting curious and communicating your needs. So perhaps the anxious attached person might come and say, look, I'm really afraid that when you walk away or when you turn away, when we're having a conflict resolution, that you are saying like, I reject you and I'm going to abandon you and I don't like you. And so you are taking ownership for this is how I perceive this. And this is what makes me feel unsafe. And then together you decide 
what they can give and what you can accept that would help you feel safer. And it's going to be different in every single relationship. I think I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago that for Kevin and I, I communicated like, I'm afraid whenever you take a break that you're not going to come back. And so we made a commitment that when we had conflict, he might need to take a break, but he got really good at saying, I'm going to go take a break, but then I'm going to come back. It was not perfect at first. There were many times he just turned away or walked away um, and that fear would come back up and we would have another discussion about it. And I would explain when you don't talk to me and you leave a conflict conversation and you leave me in these uncomfortable feelings that at the time I could not name, I could not explain, and I could not regulate on my own. When you leave me in this state, it feels like you're abandoning me. And it feels like I will be in this discomfort forever. And it feels like we will never find a resolution. That's how I'm experiencing it. That's my reality. Helping him understand this is what's going on. He was like, okay, I still need space. I still need a break to work through my stuff. But he got a lot better there in those early stages when we were still building that trust of reminding me like, I'm going to take a break. I will be back. We will continue this conversation. I just need to figure some things out myself. So that was what I needed. And he needed the break. And we kept working through things and coming back when things didn't work because they didn't. For years, we would like have hit and miss. Like sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. But what made it feel safe is we could talk about it. It was uncomfortable at first. It felt completely counterintuitive for me who had grown up codependent. It felt um, it felt really scary. But the more we practiced, the safer we felt and the more our patterns changed to create this warm, safe environment for both of us. So one of the things that I would recommend if you're trying to create more safety in your relationship is you're going to want to really get curious with both of you. What do you need to feel safe? And I find that for many of us who maybe aren't as emotionally aware yet, maybe you're not fully familiar with what makes you feel safe yet, and that's okay. I found that it was helpful for me to first get curious about when do I feel unsafe? Because remember, we have that negativity bias. We're more aware of our negative emotions than we are of our positive ones. Because our, you know, because evolutionarily we were hardwired to pay attention to danger and fear and anger and all of those different things, you're going to know when you feel unsafe more than maybe when you feel safe. So maybe for the next week or two, maybe for the next month or two, pay attention to your interactions, maybe journal every day or check in with yourself every day on your voice memo app. But when do you feel unsafe? And then trace it backwards. Allow yourself to get curious with yourself. What happened right before you felt unsafe? Was it a tone of voice? Was it a way that the person looked? And why was that something that made you feel unsafe? What did it remind you of? Like what thoughts went through your head? What was it connected to? And just allow yourself to kind of excavate for a little while. Get curious about what makes me feel unsafe and what directly precedes that feeling of unsafety and why is that an issue? You don't have to have all the answers. I know there are many of us, if you're a perfectionist, you're out there going, I'm going to have all the answers and it's going to be perfect. No, you're not. And it is going to change. So I still have triggers, even though I've been doing this work now for like over 20 years, we still have triggers and things are still going to change. And I just keep getting curious. Things that trigger me now are different than things that triggered me in my 20s. Some of them are the same, but many of them are different. And we just continue to talk through them and get curious and communicate those to one another and kind of problem solve and try things on. So do that for yourself. I also highly recommend inviting the person you're in relationship with to do the same thing. Like, let's figure out what makes us feel unsafe in not just in our relationship, but maybe in several different relationships. Can we find patterns? What makes us feel unsafe and what would help? Like, what are a few ideas we can think of that might bring us closer to safety? You might not come up with the solution the first try, but as you allow yourself to just get curious about what might be something that would help me, 
For instance, after an argument, I needed a hug. I needed that physical contact, like not just like a cursory, like side hug, not one of those bro hugs. I needed a hug where I was chest to chest with Kevin. My arms are wrapped around and I needed to breathe, which I did not understand was a co-regulation method at the time, but I needed to like breathe in his scent and I needed to feel his heartbeat. And I needed like that deep, I'm safe breathing together to understand like, we're okay. I needed more than the words because he would say, we're okay. Like, I feel good. Do you feel good? And I'd be like, yeah, I mean, I feel like we resolved all we could. But there was something that was beautiful for me that allowed my nervous system to relax after a conflict conversation by just being held and having my arms wrapped around him and just being able to like breathe him in. And it was like my nervous system was like, he's not going anywhere. He's here. I'm safe. I am not being abandoned. I'm okay. Even though no words were said, I just was sitting there hugging and breathing. In fact, we still engage in this co-regulation process today. Um, Today was nuts, like absolutely nuts. It was not supposed to be nuts. Anyone who knows me knows that I plan my life out by 15 minutes and I, I leave myself lots of cushions because I don't like to feel crazy. I like to feel like I have a good handle on the day. So today was nuts and everything that I planned and all the cushions that I put in there, they all just disintegrated. And as I was sitting down to record the podcast, Kevin noticed the tension and he was finishing up his work. He was about to go on a run and he said, you don't seem okay. Like You, you seem tense. Are you all right? And gave me open space first to just kind of talk through everything that was like trapped in my body and allowed me to just kind of like get curious with myself. He didn't really speak all that much more than just like clarifying what he heard. He didn't feel responsible to fix anything going on in my life. He just was like, wow, it feels like you're overwhelmed. I don't think At that point that I had been fully aware of it, I was kind of in survival mode. And so having him say, I see you and you feel overwhelmed. Do you want to talk about it? Giving me the space to just kind of work through it already very, very helpful because it allowed me to sort my ideas and kind of work through the insanity of this morning and how nothing went to plan. And I felt rushed before the time that I was supposed to, you know, record this podcast. And then tonight we have kids coming over to sleep over and we're celebrating my son's 16th birthday. And it's like all the things, right? Like, oh my gosh, just getting to say that already calmed my nervous system, giving me the space to like check in with myself. That's really what he did is he invited me to check in with myself. And then he gave me space to kind of explore that for myself. And then afterwards, he just opened his arms knowing that I co-regulate so well in that hug environment. And so I went in and I just hugged him and just, just the act of breathing him in and breathing slowly with him, even though I felt more regulated after the conversation just was kind of like the bow on the package. At no point did he feel responsible for how I was feeling. Did he feel like he had to fix what I was feeling or correct what I was feeling? He just saw me, gave me space earlier. Like if it had been something that I was having a really difficult time making sense of, he probably would have asked questions to allow me the space to clarify for myself and like get clear about what I was experiencing. And then at the end, he gave me what I need, which is that like skin to skin contact. I need to be enveloped It's just like a way to like remind my body now that my mind and my emotions are calm. It like reminds my body we're safe. We can get out of fight or flight. We can get out of this low grade stress and get into a place of rest and digest. So get curious with your significant other. I find this works really well with kids too. getting curious with them about what makes them feel safe. What makes them feel seen? You know, what makes them feel really good in in their relationship with you and with others. Now, I want to talk really quick about how we create more warmth in a relationship 
And there's really just like three key things that I want to bring up. There are more things than these three key ones, but I really want to bring up these three because I feel like they're so important. The first one is genuine interest in learning about the other person. So sometimes in long-term relationships, we think we know everything there is to know about the other person. And we get into the habit of only talking about our schedules, our work, the bills, or the kids' needs. And it's really important to take time to talk about personal topics. What are your hopes and dreams and fantasies? Like, what do you dream about? Where do you want to go in life? What really excites you? Who are you as a person? Because I guarantee the person you are now is not the person you were when you got into the relationship. And this is true for your kids as well. Your kids are constantly evolving. Your spouse is constantly evolving. You are constantly evolving. You will never arrive at a place where you know everything there is to know about any of the people in your close relationships. So get curious. If you don't know what to talk about, there's lots of prompts online. You can literally like type up like conversation starters for long-term marriages or conversation starters with your kids, conversation starters with your significant other as a way to like just get curious and show interest in the people in your life who are most important to you. And while they're talking, really listen and ask questions to learn more. Too often we get into the habit of listening to speak. So we listen just enough to like be like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, I know what you're talking about. And then we speak over the other person. So when they're speaking, when they're answering your question, really listen. And if something doesn't, you know, if you're not clear about something, ask questions and then really listen some more. Use your questions to move that conversation into greater depth and greater safety because it's going to build trust. When you first started this relationship with your significant other, it felt so good because you felt seen and valued. Like this person got you in a way that maybe other people didn't get you. Because they were spending that time, they were curious, and they were listening. And you can restore that again with some consistent, conscious conversation about who you are as people now. Not just who you are as co-parents or co-workers or co-signers on your mortgage, right? Who are you as a person? What do you love? What do you need? What do you desire? What brings you joy? What scares the pants off of you? Allowing yourself to get really curious and listen and really get to know the other person. There is something beautiful when you find a person that you can take off the armor with and get emotionally naked. It is thrilling and terrifying and so good for our nervous systems when we can find a person that we can do that with. And it doesn't have to be your significant other. I know some of us are in mismatched marriages right now as we're healing from religious trauma. Perhaps we have a spouse that is still in a place of religious indoctrination and trying to make a marriage work from these very limited sets of rules and possibilities. But maybe you have a friend that you can do this with. Maybe you have a therapist you can do this with. Maybe you have a sister or a brother or a parent that you can do this with. And maybe there's a community where you can practice doing it anonymously. That's okay too. We can practice sharing and figuring out how much we want to share and what feels comfortable. We can do that in some of our support groups as well. The second thing I want to talk about is bringing back play. So a lot of times when we talk about play, we think about this as something that kids do and something that we grow out of whenever we become adults. But play plays a powerful role in regulating our nervous system and reducing our stress levels and allowing us to access creativity, which is necessary when it's time to resolve problems in our relationships. It also allows us to create more positive experiences in our relationships, and it fosters the sense of safety and security between those involved. So if you have like a a lot of history of trauma Finding a way to safely play with one another, to be lighthearted, to not have to be in the trauma can start to build these like positive, trusting vibes where you can actually then explore the traumatic things with more security. 
finding a way to do things that you both mutually enjoy. And I want to bring this up from Brene Brown. Brene Brown talks about play. I can't remember which book it is now, but she talks about how she often thought that play was like playing Candyland with her kids or playing dress up or pretend. And play looks different for us as adults than it might have as kids. And this was revolutionary in my understanding with my relationship with my kids even. I find things now that they really enjoy doing where they lose a sense of like time and space when they're doing them. And I find the things that I love to do as well, where I also can just get so wrapped up in the process and love doing it. And we look for those ways to like align our play. Does this mean that I don't ever play Candyland or I don't ever play pretend with somebody telling me everything I have to wear and say and do and all of that? No, I still do those things. I still jump on the trampoline, even though having kids kind of like ruined that experience for me. I still do the things that my kids love to do. I play war, even though playing war is not my favorite thing. And let's be honest, when I'm doing those things, when I'm playing war, when I'm being bossed around in a dress-up scenario, when I'm playing Candyland and it's like the most mind-numbing game on the planet, that is not play for me. That is parenting for me. That is work. So I look for times when their play lines up with my play. Going to the pool feels like play to me. And it also feels like play to my kids. Going canoeing feels like play to me, also feels like play to my kids. Going exploring, looking for rocks, collecting treasures feels like play to both of us. So I look for ways that we can play simultaneously, as well as I also engage in play with them that feels like play to them, but parenting to me. We can do this with our spouses as well. What do our spouses love to do and where does it overlap with the things that we love to do? Reading can be play for adults. Watching movies can be play for adults. Board games, um, going on long walks, traveling, trying new food, eating new food can be play. Sex can be play. What are the things that feel like play for both of you? And I like to think of it as a Venn diagram. And I will, I actually like interview the people in my in my house. What do you love to do that you could do for hours? And like not notice that time is going by because you're so wrapped up in it. You love it so much. And then I look for the ways that our two circles overlap. What are the things that we love to do together? So my oldest, for instance, we're getting ready to hike El Camino de Santiago de Compostela across Spain for his graduation trip. We're going to Europe. We'll be there for five weeks in 2025. And we're going to hike 518 miles across the top of Spain on Camino del Norte. And when we were trying to figure out his trip, he told me all the things that he would love to do that would feel really beautiful for him. And I recognized that it really overlapped with this Camino trip that I've been wanting to take since I was a teenager. And so I mentioned it to him and he was like, yeah, we are having the best time. We walk sometimes in solitude and in silence as we're training for this. Right now we're walking like seven to 10 miles several times a week. Sometimes we walk in complete silence. All you can hear is our shoes scuffing against the pavement. Sometimes we listen to music and both of us are like head bopping beside each other or I'm listening to a podcast and he's listening to music or vice versa. And sometimes we have beautiful conversations where he opens up and he talks about things that he's interested in. My youngest, that would be torture for him. That would be work to have to go and walk that far. But for my oldest and for me, it feels very peaceful. It feels like play. It feels like connection. So find those things and where they overlap with the different people in your life. With Kevin, we play board games. It feels like play for both of us. With my youngest son, he and I love to be in the pool and we love to canoe. Those are some of the things that we love to do together. And we love to just have long conversations and like, like research things and like ask each other questions. It's super fun. So bring back the play. Play does not have to be Candyland. It does not have to be dress up. It can be anything that you love to do, that you lose a sense of time and it, it doesn't feel like work. You're not doing it for a purpose. You're doing it just because you love to do it. 
It could be painting. It could be dancing, a whole host of things that you can do and find out where those overlaps are with the people that you love. Now, there can be some trauma around play for a lot of couples coming from a fundamentalist religious background because often work was emphasized, responsibility was emphasized over play. And in some religious sects, older child and adult play may have been discouraged as equating with like idleness, being idle as the devil's workshop, or idolatry, like putting pleasure or life's pleasures ahead of the serious work of serving God. So in Mormonism, we actually covenanted in the temple to avoid loud laughter. And when you're playing, guess what often accompanies your playful activities? Loud laughter. I know several people that it led them to feel really guilty for the belly laughs that would come from, you know, playful activities. And it caused them to avoid a lot of play because they were afraid of the laughter and, you know, the things that would come from that. Some of my favorite memories of my mother's family growing up, my mom is one of eight sisters. They are not Mormon, by the way, but she's one of eight sisters. It's a mixed family. So she has some stepsisters, some half sisters. And so we would get together for Christmases, for Thanksgivings, for Easter's over the summer. And all of these sisters would sit around a table and play cards and they would laugh so hard and cackle and like, you know, they're slapping cards on each other's hands. And some of my favorite memories include this play and this loud laughter. It's what made my family feel safe. My extended family felt safe and connected as we would play. Now, some of that broke down as we got older and it doesn't feel as safe now. And I think a big part of it is there isn't that playful connection where we're connecting with each other in a way that isn't serious and isn't always focused on the problems and the drama. So play is super, super important for building these safe, secure connections. And then the last one I just want to mention is noting the tone of your voice. Our human nervous systems are wired to register deep, growly sounds as predatory or dangerous. Now, unfortunately, many men have these deep, growly voices. And when we come from religious backgrounds where we're taught to obey and look up to male authority, this is even compounded because now we have a trauma that's associated with low, deep, growly, you know, male voices. So, and this can be true for men and women. It's not just a woman thing. So just notice if one or both of you are triggered by like deep or serious voices and then get curious about it and maybe choose to bring your voice up into a more calming or soothing space. We naturally do this with babies, our pets, and even new adult acquaintances to show we aren't a threat. So this is not masking. We need to do a whole nother podcast on masking because there's a lot of confusion about masking. Sometimes we engage in social behaviors that, you know, maybe do lift our tone of voice or maybe, you know, have us engage in behaviors that maybe we're not feeling in the moment. And we need to talk about masking versus like just engaging socially with the rest of the human race, because I think there's a lot of confusion about that, just like there is about co-regulation and codependency. We can consciously work with our tones of voice in our most intimate relationships to create more safety if needed. You might be in a relationship where low tones of voice and like serious sounding tones of voice are not a problem at all, but maybe they are. And maybe this is an easy solution to create more safety so that both parties feel safe to engage emotionally and and don't have that shutdown uh, trigger that happens. Now, in Murray's research, he said that the second thing that co-regulation does is it promotes self-regulation through coaching, modeling, and feedback. And we're going to talk about kind of how this works. Ideally, when you're an infant and young child, you would have had an emotionally regulated adult sit with you in your emotions, creating safe space for you to explore them and showing you how to receive comfort in distress. And then once you had calmed, 
helping you like identify what you're feeling and wrap language around the experience so that you can make sense of it yourself and communicate it to others and then help you learn how to work through the feeling and return to a regulated state. This is the ideal. And we do see most parents engage in some of these behaviors. Think about like a really cranky infant. What do parents do? Usually attuned parents will pick up the baby, they'll pat them on the back, they hold them close to their chest. You can even hear my voice already getting into that quieter, calmer, more soothing space because I'm almost imagining my body is remembering what it's like to hold a baby that's in distress. And so, you know, you bring them close to your heart. Sometimes you put them skin on skin and you you create these comforting sounds that feel like the womb. You give them that warmth, let them smell you, and you rock them back and forth. All these things are comforting. And what you're doing is you're teaching the baby your feelings matter. I'm here to get curious with you. We're going to figure this out. You're not alone. And we're teaching them that they can receive comfort and distress. And then we do the work when they're really young infants of figuring out what are you feeling? Oh, you're uncomfortable because your diaper's wet. Oh, you're hungry. Oh, you feel lonely. You just need some time with mom. You need some attention. Oh, you know, you feel angry. You've got gas. You're uncomfortable. All these different things. So as we take care of the child, we're teaching them how to identify what they're feeling. The child is learning like, oh, I was uncomfortable. That was really distressing. Then my caregiver came in. They comforted me, they changed my diaper, and then they loved on me some more. And now I feel comfortable and I feel safe. And we're building the safe attachment. I guess as many of you did this with your kids, even though they couldn't verbalize what was going on, you went through this process of co-regulation with your infants. Now, it got a little bit more complex as they got into their two and three-year-old stage, as they went into elementary school, and then into their teenage years, right? And maybe some things broke down and maybe you're not as good at co-regulating with your kids now. And that's okay. We can learn to co-regulate again now that we have new skills and new tools in our toolbox, right? And we can do this with our spouses as well. Now, what happens for these kids who have parents that respond to them with compassion and kindness, create a safe space to explore what's going on, learn how to like meet their needs and then how to calm themselves in a co-regulatory state, what ends up happening is they get coached about how to do that with themselves through this interaction with their parents. They learn how to be curious and kind with themselves, and eventually they learn how to provide what their nervous system needs to regulate themselves. Now, I'm going to be completely transparent here Many in the coaching world, myself included, have talked about self-regulation as the first step towards healthy relationships. But like I said earlier, Stephen Porges, the one who came up with polyvagal theory, he says that in his research, it's showing something completely different. He's finding it's through successful co-regulation that we learn the skills to self-regulate. We need someone to show us how to acknowledge and give our emotions language. We need to see what it looks like to get curious about our feelings and explore them, even and perhaps especially when those feelings are uncomfortable. And we need to be guided through the process of breathing through discomfort, providing ourselves with the compassion and attention that we need when we're in distress. We don't come to the earth with these skills. We don't come out of the womb knowing how to regulate our emotions. Now, I'm going to touch on this really quick. This is coming to mind. There were a lot of parenting books back when I was first parenting in the early 2000s that, well, I wasn't parenting in the early 2000s, but I was reading the books in the early 2000s. So in the early 2000s, a lot of the books were talking about like letting your kids self-soothe and by leaving them in their cribs when they cry in the middle of the night, um, you know, and things like that. These, These were leftover ideas from the 80s and 90s. And we're starting to understand now that when our kids are often left on their own to self-soothe 
And this doesn't mean that we're perfect, right? It doesn't mean that we're, you know, 100% there all the time. This is not about perfection. But if the vast majority of the time our kids are crying, they're in distress, and we're leaving them to figure it out as young infants and as young children, the message that they're getting is my emotions don't matter. No one's going to be here for me. And a couple of things are going to happen. Either they're going to move into an avoidant attachment style of I can't trust anyone. I have to rely on myself. Or they're going to detach from the feelings in their body as a way to protect themselves from the distress. They start to disembody from their emotions. They, they do what we did in religious trauma. They move up into their heads and they, they start not paying attention to their body's needs because those needs aren't going to be met anyway. And it's too painful to acknowledge that. And they don't have the verbal capability to explain that to their parents. Like, hey, every time you leave me alone at night and it's scary and I've just had a nightmare and I can't tell you that, or when I've wet my diaper and I'm super uncomfortable or, you know, whatever it is, I feel abandoned. I don't understand that you're just in the other room and you need sleep and I feel unsafe. What we're learning now is that as we engage with our kids as we help them work through this process, they begin to learn how to do this on their own. We coach them through it, and then they can learn to do this on their own. Now, the cool thing is, is let's say our parents left us to self-soothe, and that's what we learned. Or perhaps we had a parent that was super emotionally dysregulated, because what we do as young kids is we mirror the emotional regulation that is taught to us through our parents' behavior. So let's say we had a parent that was super emotionally dysregulated or just emotionally detached. They did what we were just talking about with infants where, you know, they detached from their own emotions, their own needs, their own bodies, and they were not very good about taking care of their own emotions or having great emotional awareness. And so they couldn't do that for us either. The good news is, is our brains are plastic which means we can learn new things. We can learn new patterns. We can heal things that happened in our past. And we can learn to co-regulate now, whether we're in our 20s or 40s or 60s or 80s or 100s, we can learn new processes. We can learn how to sit with somebody who is emotionally regulated. We can sit with someone who can provide that safe form environment and like coach and mentor us through this process. And for many of us coming from a background of religious trauma, I would say the vast majority of us, we find this for the first time in an office with a therapist or a coach. I found this for the first time with Kevin, but it's because he was training to be a therapist. Honestly, like he was the person that began to create this like safe environment for us to explore emotions and distress and to get curious about them because he was being trained to do that um, as an emotionally focused therapist, particularly. So he's an EFT therapist and it's all about emotions and attachment and connection. And I'm so grateful for that because he brought those skills home. So as he was creating that sort of environment with me and our kids, it was a little frustrating at first. Can I just say that? Like to watch him recognize triggers and he would like, I could almost watch himself be like, oh, she was triggered. I'm feeling like I want to be triggered. And he would like step out of it for a minute and almost like get into therapist mode just for a minute to like coach himself through the process. So it was a whole thing. And it was really difficult being married to the person that was, you know, doing this for me because there was shame there for me a little bit sometimes. However, I also really appreciated it because I recognized that when we got into that slower place, we got a lot more done and we would have conversations when we were not in conflict about how that felt, right? Um, And what was going on for him. And the more I understood what was going on for him and why he needed to slow down and kind of almost like step back, it was almost like I was talking to two people like therapist Kevin and husband Kevin. It was very strange, but we would even talk through those feelings And it allowed me to better understand his process so that it was less triggering for me. And you can do that as well. Understanding where your spouse is coming from sometimes resolves the issue. Like, oh, you're not trying to be condescending. You're literally trying to coach yourself through this process as if you were our marriage therapist so that we can get through this conflict. Okay, got it. It's really weird. um, And I'm probably, I'm going to have to have conversations about this later, but like, 
thank you for helping me understand what's going on for you. You're not seeing me as less than you are like literally trying to coach yourself through this, the way you would coach your couples. Got it. Okay. And so we would continue to like to check in and he would often check in. Like, how was that for you? Was that okay? Um, you know, did it feel like I was too detached? Like what's going on? So we would check in after we had both calmed down and regulated our, you know, nervous systems. But for many of us, we do this for the first time with a therapist or coach. We're sitting in the seat, we're feeling something distressing and our, our therapist or coach will recognize like, Hey, I noticed that you just, you know, shut down right there. What was going on for you? And kind of creates that like safe space for you to begin to get curious with it without the judgment. And that can be a huge first step, huge, huge, huge first step towards healing and learning how to self-regulate. Having somebody coach you through that process of being curious and kind with your emotions and allowing yourself to be honest, to label them, to wrap them, you know, to wrap language around them, and then to start to explore what you need to feel safe and calm and complete. The other thing they might do is they might provide us with breathing or awareness tools to help us calm our nervous system. And they can help us figure out what our inner wisdom has been telling us to do all along to, to correct the stress for good. So many of us have a voice inside of us. I would say all of us, but I try really hard to stay away from absolutes that we have this voice inside of us that knows what we need to do to feel better. But often there's a lot of stories about what we should do or what's okay, what's not okay. And our therapist can help us kind of sort through all of that so that we can hear that voice telling us what we need to do next. So I can't recommend therapy enough. It's been highly transformative in my life. Yes, you do have to find the right therapist, though, because just like dating, there's many people out there. There is a fit for everyone out there. If you need help finding therapists who work with religious trauma in specific, um, please let me know. Reach out in a message. Send me an email. My email address is in the show notes. Um, It's terry at emancipatedcoaching.com. Send me an email. I have connected with so many therapists over the years. Some of them are not taking clients right now. So it might be a little bit of a, you know, journey finding the right one. Kevin is taking clients. Um, He takes therapy clients here in Colorado, but he is also taking coaching clients outside of Colorado. So if you're looking for someone and you've been listening to Kevin and you're like, I really like that guy. I like, you know, his perspective and I I like his tone of voice. He's not going to be for everyone, but if you feel like, oh, I feel a connection with this person and I would like to, you know, coach with him, definitely send me a message. I will put his information also in the show notes so that you can find that. He does have some availability. It's limited, but he does have some availability right now. But yeah, can't recommend therapy enough. And if you can't hire a therapist, I know right now with inflation going on, with uh, you know some of the things that are happening in the news and some of the uncertainty financially that you know right now maybe you are not looking into therapy maybe that's not something in the budget right now you can practice this in adult relationships when one or both partners are committed to the process of creating safety i find that it's especially easy when the other person has already done their work if you have a friend or someone outside of, you know, the relationship where where you're experiencing the most problems or feel the least safe. Sometimes having a relationship where you can practice those skills where the stakes are maybe lower with somebody who's already done a lot of their work, who can be curious, who can be open-minded, who um, is empathic, it can be really helpful. But you want somebody who's committed to the process of creating safety is committed to being curious when triggers inevitably arise. So I've often heard people be like, oh, you've got triggers. You still got work to do. Guess what? We all have triggers. We all have work to do. And we probably always will. Those don't go away. So you're looking for people who will get curious with you when triggers arise and who are willing to talk through those triggers to find out what's at the root of them, actively listen to one another, and then you know, be willing to try solutions on together and check in to see how those solutions are working. So your partners don't have to be perfect to create a space of co-regulation, but they do have to be open to feedback and they have to be willing to take ownership for their part, right? 
ownership for their own emotions and their own triggers, be willing to be curious about their own stuff as well as yours, and be willing to like try things on and then get feedback about that and try something else on if it isn't working. Anyway, I hope this was helpful. I'm loving learning about co-regulation. This is actually really helping me in my own life. Some of the next steps I'm wanting to take forward with my kids in some of my, you know, relationships in my family of origin. And uh, it's even helped me clarify some things with Kevin. There are some things that we've done intuitively that I'm like, oh, that's what we're doing. And then there's other things I'm like, oh, we could do that better. So just know we're on this journey with you. We're learning right alongside you. And I really do look forward to hearing your feedback. Please feel free to send me a message. I'm not on Facebook a ton. I am on Instagram. I'm kind of like jockeying back and forth between my personal Instagram and Emancipated Molly right now. Um, still figuring that out. I'm probably not going to post a ton on social media, but I am still answering messages while I'm getting my master's degree. So I'm just giving myself that kind of like out that I don't have to be on social media all the time right now. And uh, I can post when I really, really have something I want to say. But mostly I'm directing all of my time and energy here to the podcast so that I can talk with you, which is my favorite thing to do. So if you have thoughts and feelings about this, if you disagree, if you have questions, please send me a message. Um, on Instagram, you can send me an email. Again, it's terry at emancipatedcoaching.com. Or if you want to become a monthly donor, we would love to have you on the call and hear your thoughts because your thoughts will enrich the entire community. All right. Thank you for joining me this week. And I will talk to you again next Sunday.